Depression and mood disorders can make it difficult to live a happy, productive life. Find out how one of the state's largest comprehensive hospital-based behavioral health programs is offering new hope to patients with life-affecting mood disorders. Dr. Sal Savada joins us today to talk about your options with Trinitas. He is the chair of behavioral health and psychiatry. This is Trinitas Health Chat, the official podcast of Trinitas Regional Medical Center. I'm your host, Caitlin White. Doctor, let's talk about treatment first. What are some newer options we might not know about for those dealing with depression and mood disorders? There are a lot of options available. By newer, we're probably talking about the scope of years, not months. The only thing that's truly new in the last year and a half that wasn't available before was bisketamine, which is an intranasal form of ketamine. And what's Ketamine has been thought to be effective in treating depression for years, and there have always been small-scale studies of IV-infused ketamine, which is something that's given you know, with, with, through an, an intravenous line. And those studies were always small-scale, and they were always kind of showed varying results, and they were always with different protocols. So it was something that was, although some psychiatrists did adopt it, it was never available wide-scale. It was never reimbursed by insurance because it wasn't a standardized FDA-approved treatment. And intranasalist ketamine is kind of analogous in that it's the same basic compound, but it's given through nasal spray, and that was tested in a way that could gain FDA approval, and it was shown to be uh, very efficacious in people who had tried some treatment for depression, which is a medicine, like a traditional antidepressant, which is a pill, and they didn't fully respond to that pill. And usually it's at least you have to take one pill, not respond, take a second pill, and then while you're on that second pill, that's kind of being added to it. So that's kind of one of the newer treatments that's available, and it's, you know, it hasn't been shown widespread use yet just because when things are new, it takes a long time for, for treatment programs and, you know, to arise and psychiatrists kind of incorporate that into their practice. And that's one of the treatments for depression. One of the things that is actually very old, it's about 70 years old, but it's starting to see a resurgence and something that we're offering again here at Trinitas is electroconvulsive therapy. And that's something that has a lot of stigma attached to it. It's been portrayed in the movies in very negative fashion. And the movie portrayals, for the most part, are not related to anything that you would actually use it for in psychiatric treatment. It's a procedure that's done voluntarily where the patient gets general anesthesia and is asleep when they get the treatment. But in the movies, it's also it's often shown as something that's forced upon someone while they're still awake. So it's really, you know, it's really not like that at all. And it was never like that at all. But the things that historically has been a major problem with it is that there's usually some type of memory loss or a memory problem associated with the treatment. And in the last 20 years or so, we've kind of really refined the protocol so that memory loss is still common during ECT, but it's usually not treatment limiting. And many of the patients that get adequate treatment for depression report some short-term memory loss, but then it comes back after several months and, you know, they're actually very happy with the treatment. And that's something that was much more effective in general in terms of percentages. Much more people who get ECT tend to respond to that by percentage as opposed to people who just take a regular antidepressant pill. Now, when we say depression and mood disorders, are these the same thing? Are they different? Tell us about the conditions. So mood disorders in general, are something that affects one's mood. And depression falls under that category. So major depressive disorder is the most common mood disorder that we psychiatrists treat. And that's basically a syndrome where someone is sad and they have low energy and they have bad concentration and their appetite is affected. They generally lose weight, but sometimes they overeat and gain weight. They don't have interest in doing things. They have difficulty experiencing joy. They feel guilty. They may feel hopeless that life will never get better. They may feel like they want to die or may actually 
think about committing suicide. And in some occasions, they actually make attempts or may complete that without treatment. So it's, it's a very serious disorder, but it's not just feeling sad. It's a constellation of symptoms. And we psychiatrists consider it major depressive disorder when at least five of those symptoms are present for at least two weeks. And they don't have to be present 24 hours a day for two weeks, but more often than not over two weeks. And so that's major depressive disorder. And that's the most common mood disorder, something approximately before COVID, about 7% of the U.S. population was suffering from a major depressive disorder at any one time. If you did, if you just polled 100 people on average, if you had a random sample, it would be seven people were suffering. Now with COVID, my guess is it's a lot more. I haven't seen a more recent number, but you know, I think all of us are feeling it, and we can imagine that one would be more likely to have that clinical syndrome. So that, you know, that's major depressive disorder. Now there are other mood disorders as well. And the most common other mood disorder, which is much less common than major depressive disorder, is bipolar disorder. And bipolar disorder is like it sounds. There's that depression, and that depression is just like it is a major depressive disorder. But at other times, the patients are the opposite of depressed. They have high energy. They are feeling maybe happier. They don't need to sleep much because their energy is so high. They may only sleep a couple hours a night, and they start talking really fast, and they, they get distracted very easily. And they may be what we call grandiose, willing to take on extremely large plans that are impossible for them to complete. And there are more extreme versions where that is something that actually is kind of accurate as the way you would see it on a movie where someone where can become delusional or like believe things that are not true. Like they, they have a lot of money and they have millions of dollars or they're the Messiah. So really like really profound grandiose delusions can happen in bipolar disorder, but only a small percentage of bipolar people with bipolar disorder experience that. Most people are just kind of more energetic. Another person who's not trained in this could tell that they're not exactly right, but they wouldn't think that there's something psychiatrically wrong with them. And so that's kind of the other major mood disorder, which is a bipolar disorder. And there is some small percentage of people with bipolar disorder who have elements of this high energy and grandiosity, or maybe not grandiosity, but high energy and distractibility and increased in goal-oriented activity, and at the same time be depressed. And that's called the mixed mood disorder. And actually, that's a very dangerous state because many people who are depressed don't actually attempt to harm themselves because they're, they have so low energy and they're so withdrawn that even to mount an attempt would be something difficult for them to do. But people who have a mixed mood disorder, they're simultaneously feeling terrible while having a lot of energy. And that's, we consider that a very dangerous state in psychiatry. Whenever we talk mental health, it's important to talk about the stigma around it. How have you seen the way people talk about and address mental illness change in recent years? So I, I can definitely say that I've been practicing now. I'm almost ashamed to admit it because it means I'm getting older, but a little bit more than 15 years, between 15 and 20 years, depending on various forms of training. And in the last 20 years, the stigma has definitely dropped in that a lot more people are willing to come into treatment as compared to 20 years ago. And from what I read in the history books, as compared to 40 years ago, 50 years ago, when people are a lot more willing to talk about it. But because the stigma has reduced doesn't mean that it's gone away. And in many ways, it's just changed. <laughs> people are still stigmatized, and they still feel bad and feel less because they suffer from an illness. And they're just more inclined to come to treatment. But there's also a lot of that stigma may interfere with treatment and that they may give it a short try and then you know, they may kind of then realize they're in treatment and say, well, I don't want to do this anymore and just drop out prematurely. The other thing is that, you know, we in mental health typically think as a family member being a support for a patient. And it's often interesting to see that the non-affected 
person may have a very strong stigma towards treatment for mental illness and may actually stop their family member from getting treatment. So this is not a common thing, or it is a common thing, but you know, it's something that you can't just expect. You really have to know the situation. But there are definitely a lot of people who feel like they need to hide their treatment from others, feel like they need to hide that they, the fact that they take medication from others, and even from people who are very close to them and, and would normally be supportive. So it's definitely gotten a lot better, but we definitely have a long way to go. And even people who acknowledge who mental illness may still have a stigma towards it, and it's still kind of an us versus them phenomena. It's like, well, I don't, I'm not one of those people. But the reality is we are one of those people. All of us are at risk for mental illness. If you put enough stress on someone, then they are likely to incur one of these disorders. Now, some people don't require very much stress to get there, and some people require a lot of stress to get there. But, you know, this is something that every human is susceptible to. There's not an us versus them. It's, you know, we're all at risk. And so there's, you know, we shouldn't view it in that way. For some, medication is an option to pursue, but it can be a difficult one. Why does it sometimes take so many tries to find the correct medication for a patient? There are reasons that we're fully aware of, and then there were reasons that we're not fully aware of in the sense that, you know, we don't know enough about what's going on at the molecular level in the brain to say that you are going to respond to this medicine for sure versus you're not going to respond to this medicine for sure. And like, one of the things that we psychiatrists, you don't hear psychiatrists say that it's a chemical imbalance in someone's brain, but you do hear a lot of lay people say it's a chemical imbalance in someone's brain. And that's kind of like an oversimplification of what we understand, like in the sense that I can tell you if I modify your serotonin pathways and give you things that are serotonin analogs or boost serotonin, you're likely to become less depressed. But then the next inference is all well, your serotonin depleted and you have a chemical imbalance. And I don't really know that. <laughs> I just know that augmenting your serotonin makes you less depressed. Do you have a serotonin deficiency? I don't know that. I mean, we're, we don't have that level of information. I mean, we do know like dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin are the three principal neur neurotransmitters involved in depression. So we target those with our medicines and various medicines, the traditional medicines will target those. Some of our newer medicines actually work on different pathways and a drug like esketamine works on glutamate pathways, which is a relatively new neurotransmitter thought to be involved in depression. It's still, we've known it for 30 years, but now that we have a treatment, it's kind of more convincing that we're on to the right track. So, you know, part of it is there's a lot of different medicines. There's a lot of different pathways. There's a lot of ways to target the brain in terms of treating the depression, not knowing exactly how someone is truly, you know, needs to be modulated until we try a medicine is kind of what makes it difficult. Like most people re respond to serotonin, serotonergic medications, but not all will, but we won't really have a way to test the brain until we can go ahead and try that medicine and see if they're likely to respond. So that's, you know, part of it is the it's still murky exactly what's on the brain. Another part of it is when someone takes a medicine, their liver processes these medicines. And some people have livers that, that process the medicines very efficiently and you give them a large dose of medicine and the brain sees very little of it. Whereas other people have livers that process the medicine very slowly. And if you give them a normal dose of medicine, the brain sees a lot of it and that might be okay for the for treatment, but then they may get side effects like they, they may get too tired, they may get drowsy, or they may feel like they have a tremor or have some other side effect associated with these medicines. So there are more complicated, but the more simple answer is there's things going on in the brain that we don't fully understand, and there's things going on in the liver that 
even when we kind of straightforward what's going on in the brain, something would work, how someone processes the medicines can change. And all these medicines are processed similarly but slightly different, and all these medicines work similarly but slightly different with respect to neurotransmitters. So it's really more of a matter of finding the medicine that is most likely to work for that individual based on what, how they metabolize the drug and how it, their brain is likely to respond. And also, along with this, is the side effects, that they don't experience too many side effects. So, you know, it's a complicated answer. Psychiatrists can do well with a lot of patients, but there's not a medicine for everyone. And I say this because, you know, our studies show that a lot of people, given a lot of different medicines, never respond to any of the traditional medicines. Now, tell us a bit about all the components of behavioral health treatment and how they work together from yoga to meditation. So, and that's completely correct. And one of the things that, you know, I like to tell my patients is they should try everything that's appropriate for them. One of the things I get commonly is someone who's new to psychiatric care and I recommend the medicine and they say, well, can I just do yoga? It's like, well, I want you to do the yoga. Can I just modify my diet? Well, I want you to modify your diet. <laughs> is it, you know, that I drink a little bit? Is that a problem? Yeah, I want you to stop drinking altogether, even if it's within an acceptable level that you don't have an alcohol problem, but it's definitely going to be easier if you get over depression stuff. But then, you know, I want you to take the medicine too. So the reality is mild to moderate depression, and especially mild depression, tends to respond better with things like yoga and diet modification, other forms of exercise treatment than they do medicines, because the medicines tend to have more side effects than these modifications. And for someone who's mildly depressed, these modifications might actually be enough. Whereas if someone has moderate depression, those modifications can help but there's a strong likelihood that they're not going to be enough and they may progress and become even more depressed and become severely depressed. And once severely depressed, that is like the type of ter person I was talking about initially where they're unable to experience even basic things that the normal person could experience. They're so withdrawn. They may, they may not shower for days. They may not eat at all. They, it may become a health risk that their hygiene and their poor nutrition may be health risks. So someone like that is not going to exercise their way out of depression. So so there are a lot of different things, and psychotherapy does play into this. Psychotherapy is um, an excellent treatment for mild depression and even moderate depression. Like when you start to look at studies that compare the two, mild to moderate depression, if you use medication or psychotherapy, but not both, they're about equivalent, and usually about 30 to 40% get better, maybe even 40% or 45%. But if you combine the two, then you're kind of in that 55 to 60% range get better. So there are a lot of different ways to, to get better. There are a lot of ways healthy living really does work. Watching what time you go to sleep, making sure you get adequate sleep is an excellent preventative measure to make sure that you don't suffer from depression. And if you are suffering from depression and it's mild, you can do all these things and it's often enough. But those people tend not to come see a psychiatrist. They may see their primary care doctor, you know, in part of a visit, or they may say, well, you know, let me just talk to my primary care doctor. But for the people who go through the trouble of finding a psychiatrist, making an appointment and showing up to that appointment, they're usually moderate. They're usually not mild. And so usually that moderate person is going to be amenable to, to some type of medication therapy, or, you know, at least it the discussion needs to be had. They may decide, well, I'm going to do all the lifestyle modifications that make sense. I'm going to start meditating on top of everything you said, and I'm going to go to psychotherapy once a week, and let me try that first. And if, if that is what a person decides to do, that is completely acceptable from a psychiatrist standpoint. It's just they need to know the options that are available to them uh, before they dismiss them. I would love to go back and learn more about ECT, what it is and how it's making a comeback. So electroconvulsive therapy 
or you know abbreviated ECT, and which I actually learned recently from some of the older doctors on my staff who've been practicing for 50 years, used to be called electroshock therapy when they were in medical school. So, and that was in the 70s or 80s, in eh, more like the 60s and 70s. So, electroshock therapy is, is now called electroconvulsive therapy. If anyone still hears that term, it's not something you see in modern medical textbooks, but. The goal of ECT is to place the person under anesthesia and deliver an electrical current that causes a seizure. And we know from before ECT existed that people who suffered from depression and seizure disorders tended to be less depressed in the in the days after they had a seizure and then their depression would come back. And people doctors noted this so they said well if we can induce a seizure then this could be an effective treatment. And they tried use, using medicines and other things to induce seizures and it turns out it was very dangerous and not an effective form of treatment. And then you know doctors came with the idea, well, if we use an electrical current to induce a seizure, maybe we can do this safely and maybe we can get the benefit that we've seen with people who just have uh, seizures when they're depressed. And, and lo and behold, they did do that and they started treating people with electrical compulsive therapy and saw improvement. Over time, this has been modified in the sense that it's still the same physiologic principles, but anesthesia has been refined and the way we deliver the energy has been refined. And we can now treat people very effectively for their depression by delivering this modality. Now, it does have side effects in that the most common one is memory loss. And most people who have ECT experience some type of element of memory loss around the time of the treatment. So usually it's a three-day-a-week initially, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And it, they usually people get it between eight and 12 sessions. And then by then, many people are in remission or close to remission. And if they're close to remission, they might get more treatments in that same time frame. And then it can get either stopped and they can get some other form of treatment for their depression, or it can get continued on a less frequent basis. And it's kind of complicated or it's kind of lengthy rather than not complicated why one would get the other. And it really has much to do with if someone is trying ECT because they've failed so many other treatments, then the likelihood of them responding to another treatment ECT is no greater. So they would probably want to continue ECT for a prolonged period of time. Whereas if someone was profoundly depressed and at risk from their depression, and we see that in mental health where people take so little care of themselves and are so withdrawn that literally they, they lose the ability to think or interact, and that could be a very dangerous state. So a person like that might get ECT because it's the most our most effective treatment and tends to work very quickly within four to six sessions. They're they're participating in their care and they're eating on their own and they're showering again. So it's really like it's it's really amazing to see someone benefit in this way. Someone like that though, they may have not been refracted. They may not have tried a lot of other treatments and it may be reasonable to say, well, let's stop the ECT and let's go back to just medicine because now that you're feeling better enough and these medicines, which take weeks to sometimes months to work, might be appropriate for you when they weren't when you needed this kind of rapid response. Wrapping up here, even with all of this great information, it can be hard to make that first step and tell your doctor or begin the search for a therapist. But just remind us why it's so, so important to start. The most important reason to start is that one need not be anxious that they're going to wind up someplace that a treatment will be forced on them that is not indicated for them. So anyone, if they're kind of curious and they're not sure, I would say err on go ahead and trying treatment. And again, if you're thinking that it's a bad idea to start treatment, it's because you're 
under the influence of stigma. It's not rational. If you're someone who could be suffering from something, why wouldn't you go to a specialist who could potentially help you, right? Don't, we don't worry about this. Like, oh, well, if I think I might have cancer, I will go to a cancer specialist to make sure I don't have cancer. You know, there's no stigma for getting cancer treatment. But for mental health treatment, well, what if I go over there and they think that I might have mental illness when I really don't have it? And <laughs> that's not a realistic concern. If you go there to be evaluated, a professional is going to do a competent evaluation and is going to tell you whether you meet criteria for any of the disorders and is going to give you choices on instituting an appropriate treatment for that disorder. It's the same in every area of medicine and the same in mental health. You know, we talk to someone, we do an evaluation, and then we determine if there's a treatment that can help them, and then we give them options. And that's all that happens in mental health treatment. So really, it's nothing to be afraid of. There's no downside to be evaluated. Now, someone may go and they may have treatment and they may have extended treatment and they may say that I don't feel a lot better even though I've had treatment. And that can happen depending on the type of treatment or depending on the type of illness. But so there's no guarantee of success, but there is, you know, there is at least, someone should at least go through the trouble of figuring out if there is a potential for success. So I do think it's very important for people to just kind of be open to the idea of someone can help me then I should try that. And it's kind of just general advice. If you can go somewhere and be helped, why would you go through struggling and suffering and not take advantage of that help? And that seems to be something with mental illness that people feel like, oh, that's a good idea. I should struggle and suffer and not take advantage of help because it means I'm less if I get help. Uh, and again, I, I know of very few things that this applies to in any other problem that someone may serve. You know, oh, the car is knocking and pinging. Should I get the car fixed? Ah, well, I don't want to know. It's just really a unique thing about mental health that, that we feel less if we get help, whereas in other areas, it's, it's just fine. So, you know, it's natural. I mean, believe me, if I was not in this field, I would probably feel the same way. Part of our training as psychiatrists, psychologists, is to get to a point where we recognize those biases in ourselves and so we can overcome them so that we could truly be helpful to our patients. So it's a very natural feeling and it's pervasive, but it's not a logical feeling. <laughs> if you apply logic to the situation, you would say, let me take the opportunity to see if I can benefit. And then like any other condition in medicine, failure to get help in the beginning can often lead to more severe problems and more difficult treatments and more more suffering if you wait to, until it's late in the game. So certainly, you know, people who go on to attempt suicide and commit suicide, most of them never sought help. About half people never sought help. And of the people who did seek help, the most common thing is that they dropped out of help and it's more than 90 days since they last saw, saw a mental health professional. So it's really important to kind of be treated as as best as possible, and usually that's as early as possible when you qualify for a disorder, in the sense that if someone comes in and they're well, a psychiatrist is more than happy to say, listen, you're maybe sad, but you don't meet criteria for a disorder that, that we would diagnose, and therefore we're not recommending other treatment other than maybe just general lifestyle modifications that are appropriate to every individual, but you don't have a disorder, and therefore you don't need a quote-unquote treatment. So, you know, it's really, it's just to just be kind of proactive in health maintenance and look at it that way rather than thinking that there's something wrong for being evaluated and getting treated. Well, thank you, doctor, for all you do. And thank you for listening to Trinitas Health Chat. To find out more about how Trinitas Regional Medical Center can take care of you, visit trinitasrmc.org. Let our highly skilled and compassionate staff help you or a loved one today by calling 908 994 7552. That's 908 
994-7552. Trinitas Health Chat is the official podcast of Trinitas Regional Medical Center. I'm Caitlin White. We'll see you next time.